Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Good morning, friends, family. It's good to see all of you this morning. Are you warm? Are you freezing? It was very cold this morning. Uh, I'm like, is it March or is it January? I'm not sure what month we are in. But I did enjoy the little brief snow yesterday. That was fun. That was nice. I was in a heated car, so I enjoyed it while we were driving. Um, as Jordan mentioned a bit ago, welcome again to our community. My name's Spencer. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to shake your hand, give you a fist bump, uh, hear your story, whatever it may be. And we're glad that you joined us this morning. And as, as she mentioned, our hope and our aim as a community is to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. If you go read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, there's a little Greek word that appears about 15 or 16 times. It's poeo in the Greek, and it can be translated as to do or to practice. And we believe that to experience the fullness of life as individuals, that we should engage in and practice the teachings of Jesus. That Jesus was, yes, King, yes, Lord, yes, God incarnate, yes, Savior. But he was also rabbi, master, and teacher. And he wants to give us a new yoke, a new way of living, a new lifestyle to walk in so we might experience abundant life. Um, today, we begin a brand new teaching series. Brand new teaching series that's simply called Human. This is our Lenten teaching series, and we will be journeying over the next few weeks um, towards Resurrection Sunday. And as we do so, we will be in this talk and conversation called Human. And it comes right in the middle, as we've said, in the middle of the Lenten season, right in this waiting period or this season of reflection on our humanness, reflection on our brokenness and our frailties. And as I shared a bit last week, we can look around our moment and recognize our depravity. Recognize our need for healing, our need for restoration. We can look at our own life, our own story, our own season, and recognize that we are in need of healing. And this Lenten season allows for us to recognize our need, to recognize our humanness as well as repent or turn back to God to fall in alignment with his vision and path for life instead of our own. To repent or to change the way we think about the way in which we are living and to subscribe to the vision laid out for us by Jesus of Nazareth, empowered by the Spirit. Keep in mind, Jesus gives us a model to live. And then he sends us his spirit that empowers us to live in that model. And Lent is a season for us to recognize our need to repent and to align ourselves with that vision. And then we move to Resurrection Sunday as a confirmation of the person of Jesus that increases the opportunity for us to put faith and trust in this individual who was crucified, died, and resurrected on the third day and is alive even now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. I believe with all my heart 
that there is no greater way to live. There's no greater life system to operate out of than by the one laid out by Jesus of Nazareth. And I have faith in it. I trust in it. Because he himself conquered the greatest oppressor and enemy of the human existence. It wasn't Caesar. It wasn't political coercion or power. It was death itself. The great enemy of the human experience is death itself. There is an enemy. There are spiritual forces in our world that want to lead us into a path of death. And Jesus conquers that greatest oppressor by being crucified, dying, and resurrecting on the third day. So I trust all that Jesus said and did because of that. So given the humanness of the Lenten season, it seems fitting that we are doing a human teaching series. And our hope in this teaching series, for all of you, our hope is that we will be able to recapture or reimagine a biblical vision and anthropology of what it means to be human. So the idea of anthropology is the study of being human, or it's the study of humans. The Greek is anthropos. It's where we get the word uh, for human. It means self often in the New Testament, but when we talk about anthropology, we're talking about this study of being human. And our hope is to recapture a biblical vision and anthropology of what it means to be human. We not only want to look at what is the study of or the um, reality of being human, but what it requires of us to flourish. So what do humans require to thrive? That's one of the questions we want to ask. And then contrast that with how modern society has distorted or created an imbalance of such a vision. Though we live in an age where we have progressed more than ever before in the realm of economics and technology, all across the world, we are qualitatively, qualitatively experiencing a greater emotional challenge, a greater mental challenge, a greater social challenge than ever before. You know, across our moment right now, we see words that are thrown around constantly like suicide. Anxiety, self-medication, social isolation, tribalism, loneliness, burnout, and decision fatigue. These are all commonplace terms in our moment. Count how many times this next week you hear the word anxiety. Count how many times this week you hear the word depression. We are living in a moment where we've quantitatively progressed, and economically we've progressed, and technologically we've, uh, we've progressed. The data shows that, but qualitatively, something's off. We are regressing across the West, especially. And despite modern medicine, did you know that life expectancy has been dropping over the last five years? Life expectancy in the modern West with modern medicine has been dropping which shows us that something isn't 
working. The system we have created as humans is producing the very problems it promises to alleviate us of. Did you catch that? The system that we have created as humans is producing the very problems it promises to alleviate us of. It's kind of like if you go to the zoo and you see a lion at the zoo that's in this faux environment that's meant to mimic the environment that they came from, this natural habitat, the one they're meant to live in, thrive in, and you notice the lion just paces back and forth like this constantly. You'll see tracks in the dirt where they've just been going back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, man, that lion looks anxious. And they've actually coined a term for this. It's called zoocosis. And it's mimicking, I believe, our own experience in a world we've created that isn't designed for us. And it's produced a psychosis. And we're just panting back and forth, back and forth. And we recognize that the environment that we're living in, though it mimics what's meant to be curated for our flourishing, is actually not producing the environment we were meant to thrive in. Something's off. This is where we find ourselves. And I believe it to be due to the fact that we have lost a vision of what it means to be human. That we've lost a vision laid out for us in the scriptures of what it means to be human. Now, keep in mind, I'm a pastor. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist. We can get into all that. We'll bring some of that into the teaching series. But I really want to see what the scriptures have to say about being human. If there were greater answers in the secular world, we would go there. But what we're noticing is they're not there. They're not present. They can only diagnose the issue. They can't provide us a solution. New techniques are not going to fix the, the, be a solution for us. They're not going to fix the problem. So, in this teaching series, what it means to be human, the, the essence of this time is by asking a question. And the question is, who am I? And what do I need to thrive? That's the question. That's probably one of the most existential questions you're going to ask in your lifetime. Every person asks this question at some point. Who am I? Who are we? And what do I need to thrive in this world? What do I need to thrive in this time? It's a foundational existential question. So when we talk about what it means to be human, we're really asking the question of who are we? Or who am I and what do I need to thrive? Now, this question of what it means to be human has been asked by scientists, philosophers, and theologians for thousands of years, dating back to ancient Greco-Roman thought leaders, specifically Plato, then on to medieval philosophers like Thomas Aquinas, and into Enlightenment philosophers like Rene Descartes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So we're going to ask the question of what it means to be human over five weeks, and this is a question that's been pondered on and thought about by philosophers for thousands and thousands of years. So just be aware of the depth of this question. Now, the common thread among all of these ancient thinkers is the notion that humans' uniqueness, or humanity's uniqueness in the animal kingdom, is primarily our rational ability. 
It's primarily our rational ability, our consciousness, our aptitude for reason or to understand and make choices. We as humans are rational beings. We can make choices. We can contemplate. We can choose. We can reason. In fact, even to this day, most scientists agree, even though other animals might have similar faculties to that of humans, it is our capacity to reason, understand, and know that distinguishes humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom. It's our capacity as humans. Ken Miller, who is a Christian biologist at Brown University, which is an Ivy League school, in case you guys did not know, says, it's worth noting that there is an incredible chasm between what we can do and what other animals can do. That chasm relates to intelligence. Let's be honest. Humans are intelligent people. We create the future. We have ideas. We have a sense of meaning. We create symbols. If you look at one human being, you can't necessarily determine what it is they do. But if you look at a beaver, you know what they do. They build dams. That's what they do. There's not one beaver that's out here drawing pictures of sunsets. There's not beavers that are starting new businesses. There's not giraffes that are coming up with new medicine to alleviate all the pain and heartache experienced in the wild. But a human is unique in the animal kingdom. But the issue we still find is that this evidence just shows a chasm. It doesn't define what it means to be human. It just shows our difference in comparison to other animals. So what is it that makes us uniquely human? What makes humans utterly unique is that we are made in the image of God. Again, the debate goes on in science and anthropology. What is it that makes humans unique? And as believers, as people of God, we are able to say it's because we're made in God's image. We are made in the image. The Latin is imago Dei, and it comes from this passage we just read from Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, verses 26 and 27. Let's go back and read it very slowly together. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let's sit for a moment in silence with our eyes closed and let's contemplate what this is saying to us. What is it that stood out to you in this? Sit in it for just a second. Very good. Here in this passage of scripture, 
we see the very nature of what makes humans unique in the created world. For centuries, there has also been debate on what it means to be made in the image of God. There's not consensus across the board. We know it to be true, but what does it mean? There are different takes on the idea of the image of God. First off, the word image in the Hebrew is salem. Okay, salem. And it can also mean a carved image, an idol, or in the Greek, the the word is used that is icon. Icon. That word might um, be more familiar to you. And this idea of Salem was a fairly common idea throughout ancient Near Eastern culture. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. It wasn't just uh, something specifically for the people of Israel. It was a well-known idea across ancient Mesopotamia. In fact, some scholars speculate that Genesis could have potentially been written as a critique of other pagan cultures and neighbors of Israel in the time period between um, Egyptian rule, Babylonian rule, Assyrian rule. And to be made in the image of God was a very familiar concept in these other people groups, these neighboring people groups. However, it was understood in a very different way, a very different way. In the ancient world, only kings were made in the image of God. Common people were not made in the image of God. Only kings and rulers. In other parts of ancient Mesopotamia, idols were made by humans and then deified or animated through rituals to become rulers literally overnight. It's interesting because craftsmen would build these idols and then they would take these idols into a sacred garden leave the idol overnight, come back, and it would have been uh, animated, so to speak. It would clean out the mouth, clean out the eyes, take it back, and install this idol as king. And it was deified, but then the craftsmen would cut off their hands, and they would discard of all the tools, so there was no trace that it was actually humans who built this deified object. I find that to be fascinating. Old Testament scholar Dr. Sandra Sandra Richter says, even the ancients knew that humans should not be making gods. God should be making humans. This is why they would discard of the tools and the craftsmen would cut off their hands. This is an important note because God is not made in our image. Rather, we are made in his image, in his Salem. And we live in a moment, I think there's modern interpretations of us making God in our own image. Just like in ancient Babylon, in ancient Mesopotamia, we try to create an image for God. And this is backwards based on the creation story. To be made in the image of God as humans, as people, is to be a representation of God in this world. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. To represent or to represent God in this world. To image God, to reflect God. This idea of being a priest 
As humans, we originally were all meant to be priests, mediators, or representatives of God in the created world. It is who we are, all of us, our image bearers. At our very core, the very structure of what it means to be human is to depict God in the world. Did you catch that? Some of you are like, I'm kind of dozing off right now, falling into a deep sleep as I sit on this hard plastic chair, talking about my divine sense of representing God. (laughs) At our very core, we are meant to depict God into this world, to represent him. Dr. Eric Mason says, man was meant to function like a mirror, something to reflect the image of God into creation. Now, however, being or existing, to be an ick sense of being, it's not just a static sense of being or existing. To be an image bearer gives reason for being. It gives us reason for existence. It's not static. Look at verse 26. This gives us greater understanding. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Some translations say, in order that they may rule. We don't just see that they're made in God's image and that's it. We actually see that so that they may rule over creation. As humans made in the image of God, it is by default connected to a function, calling, and task in this world. It's uniquely connected to a calling or a vocation. A function. In fact, you cannot say, you cannot say that one is an image bearer apart from the vocation of bearing that image. You can't say that one is just a dancer, but they don't dance. You can't just say one is a painter, but they don't paint. You can't just say we are images that don't image. It's uniquely connected to who we are. We have a vocation in this world. We have a calling. We have a function. It's not just a static sense of being. And we see that here that humankind was created in order that they may rule, in order that we might reflect God in this world or represent him to be an icon in this world. Think about all the logos across the world. All week long, you're going to see logos everywhere, on a screen, on a billboard. These logos or these images reflect a company. They reflect a product or a service or an idea. We, in a similar manner, as human beings, are meant to be like logos in this world reflecting who God is. But we're not just a static logo. We actually have a function in this world. We have a calling. Adam was created to bear God's image into this world. He was created to perform a task. An image bearing is his reason for being. We see that in the scriptures. It's his very identity. Thus, the language of image bearing in scripture bears a dynamic, active, functional trajectory. This is from Dr. J. Richard Milton, who has probably one of the greatest works on the image of God out there in scholarship. It's called The Liberating Image. And we see here the unique connection, not just in this world, or being, but also to function as humans. We have a function in this world, a calling 
to reflect God. The challenge, and we see it in Genesis 3, is that sin distorted or marred or cracked that image. So then Jesus has to come onto the scene to restore and cleanse that image and provide for us the model of what it truly looks like to be an image bearer or human. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. Matter of fact, sometimes we look at Jesus and we're like, oh man, he's like one of us. He became human. But actually, we are to more or less reflect Jesus in this world versus him just reflecting us as the incarnate one. He gives us the model of what it means to be fully human in the created world and provides for us a restorative sense of healing so that we might now be purified to look more and more like him, the true sense of human. Paul calls him the second Adam. Why? Because he provides for us what Adam and Eve could not in the garden. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15 says, the Son is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn or the supreme one over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. And we see this model laid out before us in the person of Jesus. Now, Genesis chapter 2 paints a more earthly picture of the creation of humanity. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, or some translations say a living soul. Genesis chapter 1 simply tells us that God made mankind, both singular and plural, in his image. To be made in the image of God is a singular reality and a plural reality. You as an individual are made in God's image, and all of humankind is made in God's image collectively. So we see that in Genesis chapter 1. It provides for us the basis of who humans, both male and female, are ontologically, as well as what humans are to do vocationally. And ontology is the idea of being. So we see this in Genesis chapter 1. It just tells us that God, of God is a gift. It is both a gift and a call to be in the Imago Dei. To be made in the image of God is a gift. It's a grace that's been given to us. As well as a call or a function. So we see it's both representative in nature as well as functional in nature to be human. But Genesis chapter 2, however, as we just read, shows us the process of God making human, or Adam. When we see Adam, we always think about just some random dude walking in the garden. And while that may be true, there is some debate on that. The reality of Adam essentially means human, or humankind. And also is connected to the idea of the dirt of the ground, the dust. That's why when we do Ash Wednesday, we talk about from dust you came to dust you will return. From ashes you came to ashes you will return. Why? Because humans are from the ground. And so we see the process of God forming or making or crafting or shaping Adam. And this account gives us even more of a contextual basis of 
what we are as humans. In fact, it provides even more specificity for us. Genesis 1 and 2 are read a little bit differently. Dif- same, same kind of idea, different lens. Not only are humans image bearers, representatives, or icons, but we are enlivened and animated image bearers. Big difference. We're not just a carved piece of wood, are we? No, we're enlivened. We are awakened. We have life within us. We are living. We aren't just a piece of art, but we are a living, breathing, functioning, and active piece of art in this world. Again, a big difference from idols in the ancient world. They were static. But for us, we not only are image bearers, but we have a living, active side of us that gives us the ability to function as one's called to be image bearers and to reflect God's image in the world. So God created and formed a physical body out of the earth, breathed into it by way of the spirit. And when he did, the human came alive. The human came alive. Now, some translations say the man became a soul. And I want to talk about this really quick about the idea of the soul. How many of you have seen the movie, the movie Soul, Pixar? Okay, great movie. It gets some things wrong biblically, okay? Um, and even philosophically. So this very uh, important classical philosophy and even classical theology has ascribed the soul to being a distinct and sisterly side of the, hum- of the human. The immaterial aspect or the ghostly side of a human, a person's personality, the true self, quote unquote. And your body is merely trapping your soul. It's like a cage or compartment. This is a very um, platonic thought, going back to Plato, that your soul is distinct from your body. And, and even more so, needs to escape your body. This thought has led to this dualism between soul and body and even an early heresy of the church called Gnosticism, which we'll talk about more towards the end of the teaching series, that said the body is bad and the soul is good and the soul needs to be released. And my true self is my soul, not my body. Matter of fact, there's actually apparently a really terrible movie that came out years ago called 21 Grams which apparently is how much the soul weighs. Then when a person would die, they would weigh the person. It was 21 gram difference between when they were alive. And it's like, oh, the soul weighs 21 grams. This is not so in the ancient understanding of the soul. This is a very Gnostic idea. But the Hebrew word used to translate soul is nefesh. We're going to do some Hebrew work this morning, okay? You cool with that? Awesome. Here we go. It can be better translated or understood as living creature or living being. In Genesis chapter 1, in fact, other creatures are called nephesh. Animals, other creatures are also called nephesh. We see this word all through the Old Testament, about 700 times it appears in the Hebrew Bible. So why is this important? But we see that nephesh is translated more purely as living creature or living being. It's because human beings are integrated, not compartmentalized. We are whole. We are integrated. 
Dr. Tim Mackey says this. This is very important for us in this human series. People don't have souls. They are souls. You are a living being. You are a living creature. You are a soul. You don't have a soul as though it's like in the left side of your body, kind of, kind of tucked away. You know, it's your personality. It's in the closet. You pull out every once in a while so people can see it. No, 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 no. You are a holistic soul. You're a living being. There is no separation between body and soul. You are integrated as one human, a living creature. We love, by the way. To go further, if you look up the word, quote unquote, spiritual, which we love, by the way. We love the word spiritual in our modern moment, in the church, and even in the secular world. Like, it's all about being spiritual. I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. I'm like, what does that even mean? Okay? In the Old Testament, you won't find the word spiritual anywhere. Not once does it exist. And very little in the New Testament. It's only used by Paul in a different way than we anticipate. And that's because by our very DNA, we are spiritual beings. The Spirit animates us. Again, a unique attribute of humanity based on the creation narrative. Other living nefesh existed, but only the breath of life is breathed into humans. Some will say the difference between animals and humans is that we have a soul. It's not true. That's a misunderstanding of what a soul is. Other living creatures are souls. But we have the Spirit. We have a Spirit. The breath of life has been breathed into us based on Genesis chapter 2. So, we can see that humans are enlivened image bearers with a task. We have a task. We have a calling. Stop worrying about calling. Stop worrying about what to do in the world. You've been given it. We have a task to represent God. Not just in appearance, but in the way by which we live. We call this morality or ethics. So our ethics or our morality or vision of the good life is highly based on our anthropology and what it means to be human. Because we are living beings and we are meant to represent God, how we live matters. It either reflects God purely or it doesn't. Most of us, honestly, we grew up in, I would say, Gnostic Christian traditions. Which is to say, all you've got to do, we talked about this before, all you've got to do is come to the front, soul is good, repeat after me, pray a prayer, boom, your soul is good, and now you're going to go to heaven when you die. By grace through faith, in Jesus' name. That, that, that's a very minuscule understanding of what we've been called to as image bearers. We are living beings with a task to represent God, which means how we live matters. Our ethics matter. Our morality matters. And it's deeply connected to our understanding of what it means to be human. Our anthropology is based on how we view God. How, if, if I don't even know, I would love to sit down with you and ask, who is God? How do you view God? Because it's going to tell me a lot about what you think it means to be human. And then it's going to tell me how you interpret what it means to pursue the good life. And if we are in fact creatures, it assumes that there is a creator. If you say you're a creature, and we are, we are souls, we're living beings, we're living creatures, it assumes a creator. To assume a creator, friends, here we go, to assume a creator assumes design. 
To assume design requires that there is some sort of intent with that design. This microphone was designed for a certain type of intent. These lights have intent. And if there is intent, that also means there's some sort of vision of the good life, some sort of ethics, some sort of morality based on that intention and that design, which also means there's a level of accountability to that vision of the good life. So we have creator, we have design, we have intent, we have morality or ethics, and we have accountability. And when we talk about what it means to be human, we're also talking a lot about who we think God is and his design for the world. To live in this design and this vocation as image bearers requires not just the function or the call, but the necessary tools and framework innately within us to accomplish such a function. And keep in mind, as humans, we are broken. We're broken images. This is why Jesus has come to restore us and reconcile us to him. And we are being made more purely in his image. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. But innately within us, we have the necessary tools to accomplish the function that was given in Genesis chapter 1. For instance, an eagle propels itself through the air by flying. This is one of its functions, is it not? One of the functions of an eagle is to fly. But the eagle would be unable to fly, however, unless it had wings. So for us, we cannot function tools. An eagle can't fly without wings. And so for us, we cannot function as representatives of God without being endowed with the tools and capacities necessary to fulfill such a task. We have to have the tools within us. We have to have the structure within us to accomplish such a task. So what are those things within us that allow us the ability to walk in line with this vision or function that God has called us to walk into? What are some of the aspects of our humanity? What makes up a human? And I think that the Shema, or this Jewish proclamation of basic belief from Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer in Jewish culture, provides us the answer. Keep in mind the Shema was repeated three times a day. Even to this day, it's repeated by Jewish people all across the world. It was the basic kind of core belief for the Israelite people. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Do you see the significance? Do you see the importance laid out before us in the Shema? The call in this proclamation reveals, I think, the unique human capacities, the unique human framework that we have, the tools that's been given to us in heart, soul, and strength. Now, the heart in the ancient Hebraic world was the center of the human and the seat of four different characteristics. 
So the heart was the center of the soul or the living being, the center of the human. And there were four different characteristics that made up the idea of the heart. The first is the mind, thought life. In the ancient Hebraic world, the idea of a mind was foreign. It was all about the heart. And part of the heart was our understanding, our intellectual capacities, our ability to rationalize, to think, to understand, to contemplate. So when we talk about the, mind, or the, the heart in the Old Testament, it could also be referring to a person's intellectual faculties. It also is the organ in a person's body, your physical heart, the thing that gives us life, and it's connected to our physical life. It also could be connected to our feelings or our emotional life. When we see this word for heart used in the Old Testament, our feelings, our emotions, as well as our will or our ability to choose, the agency we've been given. All of these aspects make up the Hebraic understanding of the heart. So when in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see this call to love God with all of our heart, what's really being said is, would you love him with all of your mind, all of your thoughts, as well as your physical life, your emotional life, your feelings, as well as your will and your choices? And then he says, would you love the Lord your God with all your soul? In other words, your entire living be the entire living being that you are, would you love him with that? And then with all of our strength, and it's not just physical brute force. Essentially, the word for strength can mean muchness or very or everything. And so we see again here that the center of the human, the uniqueness of the human within the heart requires us to have a mind, to have a physical body, an emotional life with feelings, and the ability to choose or have a will or have a conscience. So we see now the integration of heart and body within a social environment because he specifically says, Hear, O Israel. Mankind was made as social creatures. In fact, scientists refer to us as social animals. We are interdependent on one another. We require each other to thrive. Go watch the documentary or the, the game show that's on Netflix called Alone. Anybody seen Alone before? None of you do. I feel really nerdy right now. One person, Anderson and I watch Alone. They take 10 contestants and put them out in the wilderness to live by themselves as long as they can. And the winner gets a certain amount of money. It's fascinating to me that a lot of them have the skills to make it, but where they struggle is the fact that they are in isolation. They're not around other human beings. And men really struggle. Men will be out there, it's like six days, and they're like, I got food, I got water, but I want to go see my family. Like emotionally, I'm struggling because I need to be around people. Even the greatest introvert, and some of y'all are introverts, you're like, I just want to be by myself forever. <laughs> That's not true. You still need people. We require sociability. So we have all these capacities, but there's also a level of which we are social creatures. And we'll talk about that later in the teaching series as well. So the work of imaging God is that humans are given to fulfill the task of being image bearers and doing the work of imaging God into the world together, collectively, male and female. But notice that the capacities here in Deuteronomy 6 are in connection to our relation to God. It says, love the Lord your God. There's a connection here and a relation to God. 
Okay, now we've come to a point where we get a chance to see the greatest separation between humans and others in the animal kingdom. It is our ability to willingly choose to interact with our creator. This is the greatest separation between humans and others in the animal kingdom. We get a chance to interact with our creator. More specifically, we have the capacity to love God and ultimately love others. Dr. Eric Mason says relationship is the most compelling factor driving what it means to be made in the image of God. In the animal kingdom, animals are also social. They need each other, but primarily for the sake of survival. But we need each other to thrive, to enjoy the fullness of life. We see this connection between humans and God in our relation to our creator. I found this Interesting article from Scientific American where Mark Hauser, who's the director of the Cognitive Evolution Lab at Harvard University, which just means he's really smart, in a recent article revealed four abilities of the human that he believes to be the essence of our humaniqueness. The most specific one he calls, quote unquote, abstract thought, or the ability to contemplate that which is beyond our senses. Does that not sound like interacting with a transcendent God? Another one of the unique attributes of humans is language. Structured words used to communicate. This is fascinating. You know, animal language is instinctive. It's not symbolic. And animals never grow in their language. Humans do. We are taught by culture. We learn words because words have meaning and have symbols. There are certain words, if you said it growing up in your household, your mama's going to take you in the back. And give you a talking to. Why? Because that word has meaning. This is significant. We have the ability to grow in communication, which I find to be deeply compelling. Because what if? What if to be human isn't so much about our capacity to rationalize, but more about our capacity to love and to communicate with our Creator? What if to be human isn't just to have a consciousness, but it's actually to have the capacity to love and grow and mature and be formed in communication with our creator? Language implies that we can experience deeper levels of intimacy and connection. Then again, if we are representatives of God and God is love, then to be human is to love. And to be human is to desire, to have affections. We aren't just thinking things, as Rene Descartes famously said. We're not just brains on a stick. We are lovers because God is love and we reflect that. Sure, we can rationalize, but what makes us unique is our capacity to love and to communicate that love. The philosopher James K. A. Smith, in his wonderful book called You Are What You Love, says, your love or desire aimed at a vision of the good life that shapes how you see the world while also moving and motivating you is operative on a largely non-conscious level. Your love is a kind of automaticity. That's why we need to be aware of how it is acquired. We love by our very nature because we're human. 
So we must know, where did it come from? How was it acquired? So to wrap up, to be human is to together love God with all of our thoughts, all of our body, all of our emotions, and with the freedom that we have to choose to love him with our entire integrated self. St. Irenaeus famously said, the glory of God is man fully alive, but the life of man is the vision of God. I'm going to go ahead and get the band to come up, and we're going to close. Today, I just wanted to set kind of a brief foundation for what it means to be made in the image of God for what it means on a basic level to be human, what distinguishes us as humans from other created beings across the created world. But just because we know what it means to be human doesn't necessarily know from today what it means for us to flourish and what we need to thrive. And over the next few weeks, we are going to walk through a model laid out for us by Paul in Galatians chapter 5 with, I believe, a system or framework for humans to thrive and flourish. And there are three things that human beings require to be able to flourish. And there's a balance of all three operating together with the reality of these aspects of our humanity. Freedom or agency. The second thing is a sense of meaning or purpose. The third thing is community, relationships, and belonging. We have to have all three of these. And I believe our culture in our moment has an imbalanced reservoir of these three. But we need all of them to flourish. And then we will wrap up our teaching series talking about the importance of our physical bodies and why it is so necessary for us to recognize that we don't belong to ourselves that we actually belong to God. And that's the most liberating way to live, the most abundant way to live. And I hope over the next few weeks, you will be challenged to look at yourself as a human and to examine your need to respond to the invitation to follow in the way of Jesus and recognize he is the most pure reflection of what it means to be a living being.